Hello and welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast, sponsored by Harper James. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Mimi, the Nordic correspondent at Sifted, filling in for Eleanor, our deputy editor. And at Sifted, if you haven't heard of us before, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast every week, we peek inside the Sifted newsroom, discuss the biggest things our journalists have been reporting on and speak to some of the people behind the headlines. This week, we'll be talking about what Germany's legalization of cannabis could mean for startups and UK-based fintech modulars run in with regulators. We're also going to discuss La Familia's merger with General Catalyst. And then we'll be talking to Martin Lueth about ERA's 87 million euro raise for its heat pump business. And we'll be speaking to reporter Kai Nicole Schwartz about the rise and fall of the health tech company Babylon. Let's, we've got heaps of news, so we will get straight into it. First up, cannabis. German lawmakers met yesterday to discuss cannabis legislation and it looks as though they will pass a law which will allow individuals to possess up to 25 grams of cannabis and grow up to three plants at home. If it is indeed agreed, the Cannabis Act, known as CANG, under which cannabis would no longer be classed as a narcotic in Germany, could be passed mid-November and come into force in 2024. But it's not just weed smokers in Germany that are interested. Why are startups bothered, Mimi? Well, the move is expected to turbocharge a medical cannabis market that is already the biggest in Europe. And it's expected to be worth 7.7 billion euros by 2028, according to a report by market intelligence platform Prohibition Partners. But some think it doesn't quite go far enough. Yeah, I mean, the law doesn't go as far as many as hoped. Instead of full legalization, the government has opted for a multi-stage process to decriminalize weed and then make it able to be sold commercially. But nevertheless, the country's weed tech startups are positive. Under Kanji, cannabis will no longer be classified as a narcotic, making it easier for doctors to prescribe it, similar similar to antibiotics. And are there any downsides of this legislation? Well, some say that If people can grow cannabis from home legally, there is a significant risk that people will prefer to do that rather than get a prescription from a doctor, which can take longer. And this has also happened in the US, according to Finn Hensel, co-founder of medical cannabis startup Sanity Group. Finn Hensel was saying that's not a very desirable from a medical standpoint. You don't want people to self-diagnose, but to speak to a doctor and understand what's best for them. And what about the recreational market? Well, I mean, the legislation was supposed to include regional pilot projects to test selling cannabis commercially via licensed shops for recreation. However, this wasn't included in the proposed legislation being debated, and there's currently no word yet on when or how it will be, be implemented. So there is little to no opportunity for medical cannabis companies to sell directly to consumers. So it'll be interesting to see whether this uh, entices more investors to back this sector or not. 2022 was actually the strongest year yet for VC funding going to German cannabis startups, but that was only $69.3 million, so quite small fry in the grand scheme of things. So it'll be interesting to see whether this legislation leads to more investment in the future. 
So next, we have a story about payments fintech Modular. Sifter has learned that Britain's Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, has told the UK-based startup to stop onboarding some new customers of regulatory concerns. Amy, what do we know? So Modular, which provides the payments infrastructure for businesses, including some other fintechs like Sage and Liberis, says it's working with the regular on fixing its systems and processes. So Modular, which is regulated as an e-money institute by the FCA, kind of agreed to restrict onboarding new partner clients with the regulator earlier this month in October. And it basically told us that because there are lots of new and revised UK regulations coming into force this year and next year that they have agreed to temporarily pause onboarding certain new customer segments in the UK while they kind of figure out what those regulatory changes might mean. What those regulatory changes that are coming in actually are, they include a new UK consumer duty, changes to push payment fraud reimbursement and a ban on incentive marketing for high risk assets like crypto. So, you know, what Modular has told us is basically they need to figure out what that all means for their business. And so in the interim, they're going to stop taking on board any new customers. To follow what happens with this story and any other potential fintechs that are affected by these incoming regulations, please do sign up to our weekly fintech newsletter where our fintech reporter Amy O'Brien covers everything that's going on in the industry. We will put a link in the podcast description for you. Next, we have a rare merger in the VC world. German early-stage fund La Familia, known for its bets on Personio and Deal, is joining forces with the US VC and, and Airbnb backer General Catalyst. Obviously, General Catalyst has also been backing Stripe and others. So, Amy, what does this mean? So, this was quite juicy news. It's got all the VCs talking and WhatsApping each other this week. But it basically means that one of the... US's biggest and most active investors, which did open an office in London a few years ago, is kind of really doubling down on Europe. It's also a sign of potentially a new trend where we see bigger VC firms buying or merging with earlier stage local VC firms. The jury seems to be very much out on whether that is going to become a trend or whether this is a one-off. But what it what it actually means in practice is that Jeanette Zhu-Furstenberg, who's the founding partner of La Familia, will become a managing director at General Catalyst and is going to help build out a global seed investment program. So I guess helping General Catalyst go earlier stage. And the other partner at La Familia, Judith Dada, is going to become a partner at General Catalyst and the deal will actually finish or complete in early 2024. All the teams remain, the separate brands remain, but you know they are now a united force. So what's the reasoning behind this from La Familia's point of view? So Jeanette told us that one reason was that you know, it would be able, for, for La Familia's point of view, they'd be able to invest at a scale that they would never have been able to do or would have taken a long time for them to be able to do by themselves. One of the interesting responses that I got to the newsletter where we wrote about this was someone who I won't name, who got in touch and said, in my opinion, the unique features of a, of a VC that would make it irresistible to buy are strong network effects which all VCs want to have but very few actually have unique expertise 
and a rapidly growing brand that went beyond the personal brand of an investor. And then what this person said to me is, now the question is, why would you ever want to sell if you have two or three of those things? So I guess the question really is, if you're in the kind of VC firm another VC would want to merge with, why would you bother merging with the other VC, which I think really is the question. I also kind of scanned through in my mind all the other US investors that have shown an interest in Europe. And I can't think of very many that would seem to be candidates for, for you know, merging with another firm. Some like Bessemer made it very clear to me that they're kind of happy with the size of their team in Europe right now and they wouldn't want to massively expand that. I don't know about Andreessen Horowitz. They have just opened up in London. They're having that office launch party next week, I think it is, or the week after next, um, might they want to get a stronger footprint in Europe? I mean, they're already a massive organization, so maybe that wouldn't be such a big leap for them. Or what other people said is maybe it would be a bigger European fund or some sort of like PE or later stage fund in Europe might see this as a route to go earlier stage, but an interesting one to keep an eye on for sure. This podcast is brought to you by Harper James, a national full-service law firm designed to support ambitious businesses. Having supported over 3,500 businesses, Harper James isn't your run-of-the-mill law firm. They've transformed the traditional law firm model through unique price plans, smart technology and teams of almost exclusively senior lawyers, giving you affordable, commercial and high-quality legal advice. If that sounds too good to be true, then head over to harperjames.co.uk and see for yourself. While you're there, you'll find hundreds of resources to help your journey from startup to scale up and beyond. Up next, we're talking about Swedish heat pump and home energy startup ERA. This week, the company announced that it had raised 1 billion Swedish kroners, equivalent to 87 million euros, only four months after it was launched. The startup focuses on green energy for households on a subscription basis and was founded by prolific Swedish financier Harald Mix. Mix's investment company Varias has also launched other high-profile startups like Battery Making Northvolt and Clean Steel Production Company H2 Green Steel. And we now have Martin Levert, the CEO of ERA, with us. Hello. Hi. Good to meet you. It's great to have you on our podcast. So, uh, ERA obviously, you know, launched for four months ago in June. And now you've gone from like more or less zero to one billion Swedish kroners in funding. That has gone pretty swift. I mean, tell us what is the problem that ERA is trying to solve? I think... Basically, we are trying to help Europe get off gas. And we're going to do that by accelerating the electrification of residential heating and basically making sure that consumers, they switch away from dirty and expensive gas and oil boilers and replace that with intelligent heat pumps and other clean energy tech solutions in their homes. And this will ultimately save consumers money, reduce CO2 emissions greatly, and drive the green energy transition. So I think, in a nutshell, that's what we are doing. And I think important to know and understand is that residential heating is the third largest emitting sector in Europe. Number one is energy generation, which is no surprise. Transportation sector is number two. But the third sector is really how we heat our homes in Europe. And I think that is a forgotten area and I think it is really the most impactful change a consumer can do. Switching away from gas or oil for heating purposes and 
install a highly efficient heat pump as an alternative. What does the market for heat pumps look like in Europe, would you say? I think it's it's highly underdeveloped outside Scandinavia. In Scandinavia, we have, since many decades, electrified our residential heating. And it's interesting that that has been done in the coldest and darkest corner of Europe, uh, where we have come the, the furthest. You can say that the penetration level in Sweden, where I am from, 60% of households, they have one form of heat pump, and uh, it's the norm. If you buy or replace your heating system today, 100% they buy a heat pump. While when you go out in Europe, it looks completely the opposite. The penetration level in the UK, for example, is 1%, Germany 5%, and that keeps being the case. So it's a highly underserved market with a huge untapped potential as people are going to transition away from fossil fuels to electrification. And now you've already launched in Italy and Germany, right? And now the UK, or soon in the UK at least. But why is it so important to add other things to your products range as well? I think the most exciting thing with this energy transition is that it will allow consumers to save money. I think if you ask a general consumer about sustainable solutions, many consumers would think it's expensive, cumbersome, would require lifestyle changes. And I think we are seeing something unique here, that there are better and cheaper solutions. The starting point for us, the number one energy consuming appliance a household has is the heating system. So that's why we're starting with the heat pump. And just moving to a heat pump, that will save a household between 25 and 40% of their heating bills. And another exciting thing is that the more energy tech solutions you implement in your home, from energy storage in, in the shape and form of batteries, uh, tapping into dynamic or time of use tariffs, and solar systems, the more consumers will save. So we are very optimistic when we do our calculations that a typical household will be able to cut their cost of energy with up to 50% in the next couple of years. So I think that's a great opportunity with this transition. Mm. So Aira was founded as one of the Vargas uh, companies, which, as I mentioned, it's H2 Green Steel, Northvolt and others. How do you think that your experience as a startup differs from others who, who don't have uh, that kind of solid investor to actually back you up? No, but I think Vargas, it, it's a great family, really on the mission to decarbonize the world and industries, hard to evade industries. And I think we've proven in Vargas with Northworth, H2 Green Steel and Polarium, that we're able to really combat some of the hardest sectors. And what we do is basically to see, is a disruptive technology or disruptive business models that can fundamentally shift and drive change in industries. And I think when we plotted, you know, what are the big problem sectors and industries? Uh, residential heating comes up, you know, as I said, as one of the top three items. And what we really think is that we want to, to make sure that we, we drive the same transition that happened in Scandinavia over the last couple of decades, export that out in Europe. There are certain barriers. And I think being part of the Vargas network, I think we have the, the muscle to, um, to really unlock some of the, the current barriers in the market for consumers. 
So I think this fits super well into uh, what Vargas is doing. Many of the other Vargas ventures, they may be more B2B focused. We are a truly direct-to-consumer business, but it's important shift. Yeah. So I was reading up that ERA has previously mentioned plans of expansion in 2024, and we need to raise another like 250 million euros for that. I mean, what regions are you looking at next? I mean, our focus right now is our three launch markets. It's uh, the UK, Germany and Italy. But uh, if you look at the European heat map of where penetration of heat pumps and electrification is low, it doesn't really matter in which market you look. So our ambition is to be a pan-European player. And we are going to expand into other markets in Europe. And we will revert into time to see what, what those markets are and the timing. But there's no lack of opportunities and there's an urgency to save consumers money. And there's a great way to do that. Yeah, I could actually also see that you have an American investor on your cap table now. Is that something that you think in the long run it will be the US market as well? Or are there no need for heat pumps? No, I I think we would not rule that out. Uh, But our focus right now is Europe. But uh, the North American market is is obviously a huge market and with also some, some great opportunities in the future, for sure. Great. So thanks for joining us today, Martin Levet, and I hope to follow ERA as it progresses. Thank you. And we will make sure you keep you updated with great news in the near future. Lastly, we have Sifted reporter Kai Nicol Swartz on the show to talk about his piece, which dived into the rise and somewhat inglorious fall of the wildly ambitious health tech startup Babylon. The UK company was at one point valued at a whopping $4.2 billion, but it's now being broken up and sold off for parts. So Kai, give us the original vision of Babylon and tell us how did it go wrong? Well, Babylon started with this lofty ambition of providing affordable, accessible healthcare to everyone on the planet. And it started out in the UK, offering video consultations to patients alongside a growing suite of healthcare tools, including an AI-driven chatbot triaging and diagnostics tool. In 2017, it, it launched the NHS's Digital First GP clinic launched more in the country, expanded internationally, signed deals with governments around the world, a number of insurance providers like Bupa and Prudential before doubling down on the US after raising a whopping $550 million in 2019. And revenues at Babylon continued to skyrocket. In 2022, it made over a billion dollars, but losses were also sky high. And in the first quarter of 2023, losses hit over 60 million, which was double the previous year. So Babylon could never really balance the books. And while it was able to continue funding that model during the boom times of 2021, as a funding crunch came in in 2022 and 2023, it just struggled to pull in the type of funds it needed to make that model work. And A big part of, I don't know, at least how I think about Babylon was the founder, right? Had a really charismatic founder, this guy called Ali Parser. Tell us a bit more about him and what picture the former employees of Babylon that you spoke to for this piece painted of him. 
a huge part of why Babylon did so well and grew so quickly in the early years was because of Ali Parsa. And almost everyone you speak to about Ali Parsa says that he is this incredible storyteller. He's a fantastic salesman. And he was revered in the early stages in the company. And he was a huge part of galvanizing this group of early employees with this ambition of providing healthcare across the world. One former employee described him as being revered like a cult leader, but was very clear to say that wasn't in a bad way. He said that Ali would be shouting about affordable, accessible healthcare, and everyone at the company got behind it. Early employees also say that it could be very stressful working at the company. There was a lot of pressure to hit targets. Parser could lose his temper, some said. If employees didn't hit targets, there were early meetings. Parser idolized Jeff Bezos and the Amazon way of working and even flew out, according to one former employee, to Seattle to meet the Amazon team. But others say that he also had this more gentle side. He could ask about your family. He could ask about, you know, your personal health. Um, and one Christmas, one employee says that he, he invited a number of employees over to his house on Christmas Day so they wouldn't spend the day alone. So he was this hugely charismatic leader who had this unbelievable drive to, to push the business forward in quite a hard way sometimes, alongside having this more, this softer side. And what about the business model? That big old question with so many of these hyper-growth startups. How did Babylon make or plan to make money? Well, Babylon initially set out to use its tech platform, its AI, to reduce the costs of providing healthcare. So it would take on the healthcare spend of a patient via, for instance, the deal with the NHS to roll out a GP clinic. And it would say, we think that we can provide healthcare for less. So then it would take the money that it saves. And that would, the idea was that that would make it its money. But it never really managed to, to reach that point. Um, in 2022, Parser came out and said that Babylon loses money on every NHS patient it takes on. And even before then, Babylon had switched its business model to focus on the US where it saw more of an opportunity to make money. But in the US, it also just didn't work for the company's bottom line. It again took on the entire healthcare care spend of hundreds of thousands of patients with the idea that it could provide healthcare for less. And it just couldn't in the end of the day. You also pointed out in your piece that, I guess, again, like lots of companies, Babylon raised a lot of money, didn't it? And then it went into this, what people refer to as blitzscaling mode, when it was just hiring loads of people and expanding really, really quickly. Why was that maybe a particular problem for Babylon in the healthcare space? Yeah, Babylon was was big into blitzscaling after it raised the mega round. And Ali Parser handed out, according to a number of former employees, Reid Hoffman's blitzscaling book to all of the senior leadership during 2020, 2021. But the problem a number of employees told me with trying to apply that approach to healthcare is that populations are just so different and what different populations need in terms of their healthcare just varies so much from place to place. One former employee told me about the rollout of Babylon's app in Missouri, where it's a less affluent population than, say, the 
healthcare population it was serving in London, it tried to roll out exactly the same app. But a number of people just didn't have smartphones that had the specs that could run the application. So it meant that Babylon had to send people out to the streets, go door to door to sign people up, and it cost millions in the end. There were other stories about trying to roll out the app in South Asia, where there are usually three to four different languages in any given country. It takes loads of resources to translate all of the different bits involved in the app into those languages. And then if you're triaging or diagnosing symptoms, the symptoms that in the UK would mean you've got a cold could mean dengue fever somewhere in South Asia. So there was a load of nuances that just made it super complex to expand internationally with the same product. Yeah, and made it more expensive, right? Because you had to tweak the product for all those different populations. So what what's the state of Babylon now? Is anything... Is anything left? People still using some of the services? What's going on? In the UK, Babylon's NHS GP service is still running. It was bought by a company called eMed Healthcare. So they are still still running that. In the US, the business was exited overnight by Babylon when a deal with MindMaze fell through at the beginning of August. And the US business entered insolvency proceedings. So what happens then is that the business goes into a fire sale and the company's debt funders, Albacore Capital, will try and rake back some of the 300 million that they pumped into the business. Babylon also said during August that it would be exiting its Rwanda operations, where it was providing healthcare for millions in the country, alongside exiting the operations that it had in Asia too. And for Kai's piece, we did get in touch with Babylon and we also got in touch with Ali Parser. We tried several times to reach them for comment and we didn't get a response. If you haven't read Kai's piece and it sounds intriguing, please go and check it out. It's a really brilliant read. You can find it on the Sifter website and in the show notes. And that is all we have time for. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all our coverage on sifted.eu. You can also find all the articles and newsletters that we mentioned in this episode in the podcast description. And let us know what you think of the Sifted podcast on Twitter or email hello at sifted.eu. And uh, please join us next week. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you, Amy.